Vincent Werbeck's Derby. Thank you, Phil, and thanks for having me uh, back. Um, We're carrying on our series in Philippians today. Uh, It's our third week in the series of Philippians. We're going to go straight there. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn to uh, Philippians, we're in chapter 1 still, right at the end of chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. So if you've got a Bible, feel free to flick your way to there. It's right at the end of the Bible, um, you know, right near the end. If you need a Bible, there's a few dotted around if you would like one. Or if not, feel free to follow it on the screens. They will uh, pop up. But it is our third week in Philippians. The first week, Andy gave us some brilliant context on, uh, on who were the Philippians, um, who the book was originally written to, and how it still speaks to us today. And last week, Phil took us through most of uh, chapter one and gave us some really key pointers in there. And we're finishing uh, chapter one today. And I, I get really excited uh, when we get to spend 10 weeks in one book of the Bible and really get our teeth into what, what God was saying then and what God is still saying now. Uh, through the Bible. Um, The talk today is titled, A Life Worthy of the Gospel. Uh, When I got given that title, I gulped a little bit. It's a little bit daunting considering what it means to live your life worthy of the gospel. Uh, We're hopefully going to get our teeth into this today. So we're going to read just from chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. It says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that your word is alive and you long to speak to us through it. So I pray, would you help all of us, all of us fix our eyes on Jesus so that we might become more like you through today. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I quite like going to the supermarket. I realise I might split the room here. Um, I'm a bit of a fan of going to the shops. Um, it's, been, it's been something that has grown on me over the years. Um, I never really used to uh, like going to the shops, but because I go more regularly than Esther because we only have one car um, and I normally have it generally to keep the rest of Derby safe and also because I need the car um, get, getting to and from uh, work. And right by my uh, job, where I work in my secondary school, there's a massive Tesco. And on the way home, there's a Sainsbury's and a Morrison's. So I've got lots of choice, you know, keep it varied um, as I'm going to the supermarket. And generally, um, the weekly shop, I feel like, at least for me and my generation, has kind of died out. We don't really do that anymore. I probably pop to the shops at least three or four times a week on the way home from work and just... um, I quite enjoy it, basically. And the reason I enjoy it is because I love getting a bargain. That's the real reason. I love going in with a list from Esther and thinking, how can I get a bargain and feel like I'm beating the system? I feel like I'm winning if I come out, maybe not with what I needed, but with something that was an absolute bargain, a steal. And so uh, just the other week, I was on my way home from work, uh, and I popped into Sainsbury's this time, um, and my favourite cereal is... Uh, granola, uh, Jordan's granola, fruit and nut. And I absolutely love it. Um, so if you need some new cereal recommendation, there you go. I pretty much have it every day of my life. Sometimes with milk, sometimes with yogurt. So I do mix it up a little bit. Um, but I was on the way home, and <laughs> we're losing track here a little bit, I know. Um, 
But I absolutely love it. But it is a little bit expensive. And so sometimes I can't justify spending that much money on a bag of granola. So I was in Sainsbury's and it was on sale. And normally when it's on sale, there's none left. But there were four bags of granola. So I'd so excited. I headed straight for the till, paid for them, got home. Esther's like, did you get the stuff we needed? I was like, no, but I got four bags of granola. She said, well, what are we going to eat for dinner? I said, granola. Um, And we've got enough now to last us till at least June, and I got it half price. So we might not have anything for dinner, but we've got a lot of granola if you want to pop around for breakfast at any point. But I do love getting a bargain. Uh, But when I was younger, um, shopping was a little bit different. I grew up in a house with three brothers, and there's only about five and a half years between the four of us. Um, And I think the weekly shot for my mum was a chance to to get away from us for a couple of hours on a Saturday morning uh, from causing chaos. And so she would generally go on her own and do the shopping on a Saturday. She would only ever take us uh, during school holidays. And I think that was uh, tormenting enough during the holidays. She didn't take us the rest of the time. Uh, But when she would get the key going into the door and the door opening, it would be, boys, the shopping's in the car. Can you go and get it? And as, you know, godly, loving, caring, kind children, we would all run away as far from the front door as possible uh, and avoid helping at all costs, even to the point of pretending to do our homework or even pretending to be praying to avoid helping. Um, But my mum would see through this pretty quickly and we would either try and avoid it or if that failed, and it normally did, it would then become a competition. We lived in extremes in our house of four boys. And suddenly, uh, me and my brothers would run to the car to see who could grab the most bags and who could win, uh, you see a theme here, um, and get the most bags in through the front door. Um, and in those days, it's probably going back 15 years now, uh, single-life plastic bags existed. I know that's a bit of a banned word. Uh, but they did exist once upon a time. And the one benefit of single-life plastic bags, I realize those two phrases haven't been used in a sentence for a while, but the benefit of single-life bags was that you could get loads up your arm. So really, if you didn't bring in double figures worth of shopping bags, you were a bit of a failure. The goal was always 12, six on each arm, and I'd rush to the car, beat my brothers, grab the bags, and I'd stumble my way from the car to the kitchen, whacking the bags against the wall on the way through to not let my brothers pass. I'd get to the kitchen, and I would just unload the bags from free foot, just drop them and go, I've done it, Mum, and all in one trip. And she would quickly remind me that... Dan, it's not actually quite done because now the shopping needs to go away and actually I need to throw away four of the eggs and the milk because you dropped it from free foot and the eggs are cracked and the milk is now leaking over the kitchen floor. But I guess, I guess thanks anyway. And I think uh, some of us treat living a life worthy of the gospel a little bit like I used to treat our weekly family shop. The first group of us, I think, uh, we excuse ourselves. We get as far away from the front door as possible. We make excuses and we pretend like we're doing other stuff. And, well, I did it last week, Mum. My brother hasn't done it for two weeks. And we make excuses and we hide away and we pretend like it just doesn't need to happen. And the other group of us, we... We try and do it in our own strength. We try and rush to the car and bring in as many bags as possible, as if living a life worthy of the gospel is for this sort of elite Christian group that can do it in their own strength and determination and resilience, like living your life for Jesus is something that you can do on your own. And I think lots of us treat living our lives worthy of the gospel a little bit like this. Somehow, if you try harder, if you do more, if you cling on, just like I used to cling on to those bags, somehow that is enough to enable you and me to live our lives for the gospel. But this gives the illusion that living a life worthy of the gospel is something that you and I can get on our own. 
And there is actually no such thing as a spiritual elite and being able to live for Jesus on your own, in your own strength. Because the context of this letter to the church at Philippi, and in particular the context of these three very challenging verses we've just read, um, is chapter 1, verse 6. Um, so I just want to quickly read to you uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says this. It should appear on the screen as well. It says, being confident of this. So being assured, being guaranteed that it's going to happen. Being confident of this, that he, that's God, he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not, it's not an accomplishment that the Philippians could just take credit for themselves. Rather, it's something that God initiated by grace and which he alone can and will bring to completion. So let's just get something straight as we begin this morning. Living your life worthy of the gospel is, is something that none of us can do on our own. The marvelous and freeing thing about that statement is that it puts us all in the same boat. Whether you've been a Christian for one day or 50 years, whether you feel like you've had the worst possible weekend or the best possible weekend, we are all in the same boat, needing the same Holy Spirit to empower and equip us to be able to live our lives for Jesus. It is faith that saves us and it is faith that pleases God. That's what the Bible says. Faith saves us and faith pleases God. And I was really wrestling with this this week. And I started to think, do I really think, sometimes when you think about faith, I think it's something that I muster up within myself, something that I find deep within me to enable me to believe in God. But is our God really that small? That something that saves me, something that enables me to please God and something that helps me live my life worthy of the gospel is something I find within me. Actually, the most common Greek word used for faith in the New Testament um, is this word pistis. And pistis might not be a Greek word you forget very quickly. Um, Pistis uh, doesn't translate as work harder, as do more, as try harder, as only for the best Christians. No, pistis uh, commonly translates as persuasion. And in the context of the New Testament, what I mean by that is um, divine persuasion. So persuasion by God. So you are saved by God's persuasion. You please God by God's persuasion and you live your life worthy of the gospel by God's persuasion. You know, I could this morning set out five keys to live a life worthy of the gospel and we could talk about getting up early to pray and reading our Bibles and tithing and giving to charity and living moral lives and all those things are good. They are examples or fruits of living your life worthy of the gospel. But they are not ends in themselves. I felt like as I was preparing this at the beginning of this week, God really spoke to me and asked me to speak on the source rather than the fruit. God wants to simply remind us who is the source and supply of the life we are called to live and the answer is God himself. And only he can help us live it. And when we get the foundation and the source right, the fruit will naturally come. You know, you can't live a life worthy of the gospel without God's gracious initiation and action towards you first. God is calling us. God is calling you. God is calling me. Just like he called Paul who was stuck in chains and potentially facing death for his belief in Jesus as he was writing this letter. God is calling us to lift our eyes beyond and above the barriers and the problems and the things we're frightened of and to start looking at the supply rather than the need. 
you do these things in a way that leads to transformation and a life worthy of the gospel in you and leading you and empowering you. So my application today is not some top tips for a holier life, but to cry out to God to divinely persuade and empower you and me again. We need God to do this. So let's let God be God today. That is your access to a life worthy of the gospel. So that's the context for uh, today's three verses. But it's, it's not just the context. We see if we dig a little bit deeper into these verses, we see actually to live this life worthy of the gospel that the text talks about, we need the Holy Spirit. In verse 29, it says uh, the phrase, it has been granted to you, i.e. it has been given to you. And that phrase, granted to you, the Greek word used here conveys the idea of the free, unmerited uh, kindness and favor of God. It's something that you can't get on your own. Even embedded in these three verses, we dig a little deeper, we see that living this life worthy of the gospel, living this life for Jesus, is not something that you can find in of yourself. We're talking about living a particular lifestyle and in a particular way for Jesus, but it is not something you can do on your own. Verse 27 says that whatever happens, we must conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm, two things here, standing firm in the spirit and striving together. The phrase striving together in verse 27 shows that actually living this life is impossible outside the context of church journeying through life with people, having relationships that sharpen you and should sharpen us and push us closer to Jesus. And if you haven't got those sorts of Christian relationships today, I would encourage you to find them. They don't magically appear and they definitely don't form overnight. But go to the book cafe after church. Join a words group on a Wednesday or a Saturday morning. Serve on team on a Sunday. Invite someone around for dinner. Go for coffee. Invest in people that are going to force you to look to Jesus. But what precedes striving together in verse 27 is standing firm in the Spirit. Yes, we need relationships within church to call us out, to disciple us, to champion our walk with Jesus. But we also need God with us the Holy Spirit, to empower and equip this life for the gospel, to live this life for Jesus. We need each other. We need the church. We need relationships that force us to look to Jesus. But we also need the Spirit's empowerment. And I love that verse 27 begins with the sentence, whatever happens. And I sort of imagine Paul shouting this, whatever happens. Or in some translations it reads, only and always. And in so doing, Paul is stressing that the only essential thing for the Christian is to live your life worthy of the gospel. And I've been on half term uh, this week. It's the only reason I became a teacher. I get a holiday every six weeks. Um, that's not true. I, was, I sent that on the microphone. I shouldn't have. I like teaching. Um, but the, the lesson before I, uh, I broke up Friday afternoon, I had my year 11s, the graveyard shift, Friday period five. Um, and, um, and they're probably not going to do very well because they're probably not going to do any work during half term. But I gave them lots of tips of things they should revise, bearing in mind I've written the paper that they're doing. My tips really do help. But I could see they were sort of phasing out into half term mode. So I finished the lesson last five minutes by saying, whatever happens... Please, practice your 12-mark questions, revise your for and against arguments, and then you will do well. 
really, I was saying, I don't trust you to do anything right this week, but just do this one thing, and it will help you do well in your mocks after half term. If you just do this one thing, year 11s, it will help you. And that's kind of like what Paul is saying here. Just do this one thing. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean for me and for you in our everyday, ordinary, normal lives to try and live a life that is worthy of the gospel? We've seen that we need to focus on the supply of this lifestyle. And that's our first application today. But I want now to warn us of the antithesis or the the barrier or the blockage to a life worthy of the gospel. And then finish by suggesting, according to Paul, where this sort of life might lead us. So what is the antithesis um, of a life worthy of the gospel, I hear you asking. (laughs) And I would argue that in the developed Western 21st century world, the greatest opposition to the life Jesus calls us to is comfort. We live in a culture that is deeply committed to comfort, security, health and safety. And if I'm honest with you, this is not, it's not surprising at all. If this is all there is, if this is the only life we have, well, then let's make it as comfortable and as long and as pleasure-filled as possible. Get more and better and nicer and newer possessions. Have more money in the bank. Avoid risk and have as many security nets as possible. In many ways, all these things are good, and actually a lot of them are wise. But it's when they subconsciously become more central to your life than living for Jesus. That is when we have a problem. We need a different perspective and worldview to the one that our culture offers us. What if this life is not all there is? What if there is something that is infinitely more important in your life than comfort and safety? And what if missing this actually means missing the whole point of the gospel? Whatever happens, Paul says, no matter what, live your life worthy of the gospel. You know, be writing this letter in chains will lead him in just a few years from writing this letter to be killed for his commitment to the gospel and his commitment to Jesus. If other things squeeze their way above that in your priority pecking order, then you miss the point of your existence as a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus and living your life for his gospel is the command. Jesus is not an add-on, a weekend bonus, or something that makes us feel nice on a Sunday. Jesus is everything. So if comfort and security is not the goal, or rather it gets in the way of the goal, what is the goal? A life worthy of the gospel, which simply means for the Jesus follower, Jesus is the goal of your life. Jesus is the goal of your existence. It doesn't mean living your life to be worth Christ or deserving of Jesus. That's impossible. You can't earn your way to Jesus. That is contrary to the gospel. Rather, Christ is of infinite worth, so let's live like it. The good news of Jesus is of infinite value, so let's live to show it in absolutely everything that we do. And why does the gospel have infinite worth? And here's the best bit. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus did so that we can get Jesus. God was willing to send his one and only son to die on a cross so that you and me might know friendship with a living God and live forever. That is the gospel. That is what Paul is excited about, saying, I would rather die in my commitment to live for that. The good news that Jesus gave his life so that we're ever with him. You know, we see so clearly in Philippians that Paul lived like this. 
In chapter 1 alone, he makes five references to Christ being everything. The most famous one being when he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is Paul's life. That is the goal of living a life worthy of the gospel. And in chapter 3, Paul continues this theme and he ends up calling out a bunch of people for how they define success and comfort in God. And he goes on to list his CV of successes and comforts. Paul had every reason to put his confidence in earthly things. He kept an impossibly high moral standard. He was born into a great family line. He followed all the rules and he was respected. If anyone could put their trust in earthly, temporal, material things, it was Paul, above anyone else. For us, we might translate this as lots of social media followers or a big house, money in the bank, great family, giving to charity, helping those in need. None of those things are wrong. But Paul is calling out these people for putting their trust in these things instead of in Jesus. Paul says three times in these short verses in chapter 3, I count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ is all and all for Paul. Anything that gets in the way of this life, Paul describes as rubbish. The actual word he uses is dung. And we could translate that into a word I won't say on the microphone. But Paul would gladly lose everything on his CV for knowing Christ. It's all rubbish if you compare it to knowing Jesus. It's like Paul takes a piece of paper and he splits it in two. And on one side he writes everything the world can offer and he puts a word above it, loss. And on the other side of the paper he writes Christ and he puts a word above it, gain. Because Paul really believes that the best things of this world are like rubbish in comparison to Jesus. That is a very different way to think and live. It's a radically different Christianity than one that's so often practiced in our culture from the one that I so often see in myself. And this is why the question of whether you are living a life worthy of the gospel this morning is not how successful are you, how influential are you, how often do you attend church, do you tithe, do you live a moral life. All those things are good, but they're potential fruit of the true goal of knowing Jesus. They're not ends in themselves. Because the reality is you can have those things and still not have Jesus. That's why Jesus was so critical of the Pharisees because that's exactly what they did. They had the fruit without the person. We have to get through what Paul would describe as the dung or the rubbish and ask the question, do you know Jesus? Is Christ your life? Is Jesus your life so far that you would say that all the best things in your life do not compare to the treasure you have in knowing Jesus himself? We could end here, couldn't we? And we will soon, I promise. Christ plus nothing really is the answer to living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. But Paul shows us one more thing which just takes us further into this truth that knowing Jesus really is above everything else and is your access to living a life worthy of the gospel. If Jesus is your life like this, then don't miss what happens. When Jesus, I had to go back about five or six times and reread it because I was unsure what the Bible was trying to show me. Uh, But verse 29 says this, for it has been granted to you. Remember that word granted, it means grace. It means it's been given. It's a gift. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. This is a weird verse. It makes sense that believing in Jesus is a gift. Salvation is the best gift you could possibly ever receive to be friends with God. 
It's the best gift. But alongside that, it says that suffering is also a gift. They're side by side in this text. And we need to find out why. I wonder if you've ever been given a gift that you didn't want. Esther and I got engaged <coughs> Sorry, after a year of dating. In our second Christmas together, um, uh, we're still exploring how much Esther loves giving presents. And she came round to exchange gifts and I opened this present. It was a Converse box. And I was like, brilliant, Converse. I need some new trainers. Converse are cool. That's great. Thank you. But she's looking at me like beaming. I'm like, well, this is a bit weird now. Yes, they're Converse. Thank you. Uh, she's like, open them over. I'm like, yep, they're a nice color. Thank you. She's like, look at them. I'm like, they're just Converse. Chill out. No, she's like, look at them. So I turned them over, and on the outside, like the outside so everyone can see, Esther thought it was a great idea to get them personalized. And when I say personalized, not a sticker, I'm talking she got someone to stitch in the phrase which said, D loves E. So now I'm thinking, we're not even married yet. I can't just put these in the back of the cupboard. I'm going to have to wear these and pretend like I want to. But I'll be honest with you, I died a little bit inside at that point. And I did not want that gift. That was not a gift I asked for or a gift that I wanted. You'll be pleased to know they no longer exist in my wardrobe. Um, but that was a gift I didn't want. And, and this text is a little bit like that, isn't it? How on earth do we see suffering as a gift? What is suffering? Suffering simplified is the things we want, enjoy, and love being taken away from us. More often than not, it's really good things. When we lose health or loved ones or money or families separate, we suffer deeply. And it's often because of circumstances that are out of our control. But let's go back to what we talked about earlier. When you've put all the best things in this world in one column under loss and you've put Christ in a column under gain, then when some of these things are taken, it's not easy. That is real. But when Christ is your life, When suffering takes place and one or more of these things are taken from you, suffering only drives you to Christ. It only forces you to turn to Jesus and realize that everything on this list, however great it is, is temporal and fleeting and passing away. But Christ is eternal and Christ will remain whatever your situation or circumstance. Suffering forces you to cling to Jesus like nothing else on this planet. Suffering is a gift because it forces me to my King Jesus. And when I was uh, 14, um, my, my mum passed away after a long <coughs> battle with cancer. And I was thinking about this even just this morning. And this week, um, I've lived now as many years without my mum as I did with my mum. And that time was really quite difficult. And I've never been great with my emotions. I bottled them all up, and I still do a little bit. Uh, I've got better as I've aged. Um, but for about 18 months, I literally didn't talk about it to anyone. I didn't cry in front of anyone. I just pretend like it didn't, wasn't happening. I put it in this box and I hid it away. And then I was at a, a youth meeting about 18 months after my mum had passed away. And I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't planning it. And I definitely didn't want it. But I just broke down. Um, and my youth leader was brilliant at the time and he really helped me. Um, but after that season of boxing it all up, where suffering led me was to my knees. Suffering led me to seek God like nothing else. It led me to scripture. It led me to seek out discipleship. It led me to cry out to God and say, why? Where are you in this? And that suffering, I genuinely believe, is one of the reasons I'm here today and why I can cling to Christ in 
all seasons, good and bad, because some deep wells have been dug where I know who my Lord is and I know what is eternal and it is Jesus. I know that nothing compares to the closeness I have with Jesus. And I am not here suggesting that somehow God sent that cancer to my mum so that I might learn to trust in him. Absolutely not. God is a good God and God only has good things for you. But our world can be painful. If you live long enough on this planet, suffering will come, pain will come, heartache will come. But how can you turn that into a gift? Because that's what the Bible promises if you know what's on the side of gain. And it is Jesus. The reality is the dangerous place to be this morning is a place of comfort and security where you don't need to cling to Christ because the world provides everything you need. And can you see Again, nowhere in Scripture does it say pursue suffering, pursue persecution, pursue pain. That is not biblical. But we do live in the turbulent, broken, sinful, painful world. And suffering will come. Difficulty will come. But here's the bit that gets me excited. The Bible shows us that when you treasure Christ above everything else in this world, then there is nothing that this world can do to rob you of your joy and your hope and your peace and your life because you have all these things in Jesus and nothing and no one can take that from you. The paradox is suffering leads to the magnifying of Jesus and his good news. Paul is suffering in prison and his suffering has led to the imperial guard getting saved. Suffering throughout history has always led to the spread of the good news of Jesus. Declaring your faith in Jesus when everything else is going well, when you've got everything that life can offer, the world doesn't really take notice of that. So it's cool, you've got everything and you've got Jesus, it's nice for you, but it's not really for me. But when life takes a different turn, when life's difficult, when suffering comes, and in the midst of that you can say, Christ is my strength, Christ is my life, Christ is my hope, and Christ is my peace, the world will take notice. The world will watch and say, that's a God I can serve, that's a God I can worship, because it's hope in the hopeless situations. That's a different way to live, and it's a different way to die, because follow this. Not only when Christ is your life is suffering a gift, but dying is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This is not just the testimony of Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. This is the testimony of those who truly live with Jesus as their life. Just like suffering leads us to having Christ more intimately and closely, well, death leads you to have Christ completely and fully and finally forevermore. So here's the question as we wrap up. And the band are going to come and rejoin me. Do you love Christ so much that to lose everything in order to be with him would be gain for you? Of course, we don't chase after those things. But it's a deep foundational truth that shapes your decisions and who you are. This is so countercultural, So different to the message we hear from our world. But at its simplest, it's to say that Jesus is better than all and Jesus is everything. We've been singing about it this morning, but can it be a reality in our lives? So now in Christ, the worst thing that can happen to you, death, has become the best thing. That transforms everything. It's one thing to talk about this, it's another thing to try and live it. So we, we're going to respond together, we're going to sing and we're going to respond